Ecclesiastes 8. It says, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is futility which is done on the earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, I say that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good in a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task with, uh, which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should uh, seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Well, this is the word of God. Um, over the past two weeks, we've, we've been looking at Solomon's exhortation concerning how to live a, a better life under the sun which is a, a life lived in a world that is full of, of sin and temptation. To summarize chapter 7, we can say that really the best way of living is the godly way of living, right? There is only good, one good way to live, and that is the godly way, that we live according to God's commandments. We are to live according to God's design for life. God has created us. He knows how we should live as our creator, and he's expressed how we should live, and that is really the good life, to live as we have been uh, created. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 8, in which Solomon argues 
according to wisdom, which we've seen him do this over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But in particular this morning, he describes wisdom as it applies to rulers, civil magistrates. And that really is the theme of, of chapter 8. And we've seen, a, we've seen Solomon talk about this, this topic of, of civil magistrates, of, of those who rule over us. And he's interacted with those wicked rulers who oppress the people, who take advantage of those under his authority. And this has been a theme throughout Solomon's book. He's talked about this quite a lot. And again, this morning we revisit this topic. This time, however, it's, it's somewhat different. Solomon here looks at the duty and the perspective of one who is under such a ruler, one who is under a civil magistrate, whether he be wicked or whether he be righteous. So found here in chapter 8, we're going to see Solomon exhort us to keep in subjection to those who have been placed over us, for it is God who set those rulers over us. Now this is a general principle, because there are times and exceptions which we will look at where it is not right to obey civil magistrates. It is not right to obey civil rulers. And Solomon is going to discuss being prepared for these evils, and that we shouldn't be shocked when we run into a wicked ruler. He's going to exhort us again, as we've seen in the past, not to be shocked, not to be taken by surprise that one who has much power has much wickedness, and that he is an, an oppressor. He is one that does evil when he should do good. However, there is comfort that we can even have when we're under a wicked ruler. And again, it's something that we've looked at before, but the wicked ruler will not go unpunished. He may go unpunished in his life. He may have a very long life. He may have a very long reign, but that doesn't mean he escapes punishment. He may escape the due recompense of his wickedness here on earth. However, he will stand before the judge of judges. So looking here at verse 1, Solomon says, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his face to beam. So he begins here, as he has several times, by upholding the importance of wisdom. Again, this is a book of wisdom, and Solomon was a great lover of wisdom. He wrote much about wisdom. So here he upholds wisdom again. And there are two things that Solomon has desired to seek out throughout the book, and that's wisdom and folly. He wants to know what is wise, and he wants to know what is folly. What has he chased in his life that has been folly? What has been wise choices? So we've seen him go through this, go back and forth with wisdom and folly. In Proverbs 9-7, he says that wisdom is the principal thing. It is the foundation of all right living. But... But it isn't wisdom in itself that's so valuable. It isn't just to be wise. What does it mean to be wise? And we, we've looked at that. It's really the ability to interpret and then act in a wise way that's valuable. It's not just knowing what you should do. 
It's being able to apply and to actually do it in situations. And we've also looked at the, the difference between the pursuit of wisdom as an intellectual endeavor versus the, the pursuit of wisdom for what I would call the heavenly endeavor. That there is a vast difference between the two. The former, the intellectual endeavor, really doesn't have substance. But the latter, it has much benefit. It has, there's great gain to have wisdom for a heavenly endeavor. And heavenly wisdom is evident. Solomon says that here that it makes a man's stern face shine. You think of a, a man's face and it's stern. And you think, oh, he's, he's really hard and stern. And it says wisdom in this man's life causes his face to and you kind of get this idea of a stern face going to a beautiful face. So that's the effect of, of wisdom. And Charles Bridges says, Godliness is never long without making itself seen. That godliness is never long without making itself seen. That if you possess godliness, if you truly possess godliness, it won't be long before others see it in you. So before Solomon begins talking about general principles as it pertains to rulers, he reminds us of the importance of being wise. And this is a topic where we need to be incredibly wise because there is great trouble to be had when interacting with civil magistrates, especially if they are wicked. So he starts here with wisdom again. And he reminds us of, of the importance of wisdom and to interpret all of life through wisdom. He says that such a man will be an example to those around him, that, that the wise man, the man who's got the stern face, but wisdom makes it, makes it shine, that this man will be a great example to those around him. So you see why it's important to have wisdom and to have it as a heavenly endeavor, one that is meant to glorify God. So that's what we're going to be looking at here. Looking at uh, verses 2 and 3, Solomon says, I say, keep the commandment of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. So now we see him dealing with, with this relationship between a person and, between a person and the other who is in a place of authority. Put simply, Solomon really calls us to obedience, that we're called to obey our civil magistrates. He says to keep the king's commands. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Keep the king's commands, that you are to, to be a, a good uh, follower, a good uh, supporter of the king and of the king's commands. We are to respect those who have authority in our lives, and not just in the, the work life, in every sphere, right? Children are to obey their parents. We are to obey our church officers. We are to obey our civil magistrates. We're to obey our, uh, our, our supervisors at work. In all these spheres, 
we're called to obedience. And Solomon here calls us to obedience. Now, our Westminster Confession of Faith discusses this, and it, it tells us about the duties of superiors and inferiors and equals. When question 127 of our what is the honor that inferiors owe to superiors? So what is it that, that we owe to our superiors? Now listen. It says, the answer is, the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Now that's a whole lot, isn't it? Our duties to superiors. Now, do we really think this way? Do we, do we really focusing on covering our supervisors in love? Well, we don't, do we? It's very easy to criticize those who are over us. And we take liberty of often criticizing those who are over us, sometimes justly. But to, balance, to be balanced would, would demand that we also cover them in love, and that we also have fidelity to them, and that we are supportive of them, and that we obey them when they give lawful commands. That doesn't mean that we like every command they give us, but if it is a lawful command, we are to obey it. That is to say that we are to have a general disposition of submission to those who are over us. Whether it's our parents, our supervisors, elders, civil magistrates, we are to honor them, we are to pray for them, and we are to submit to their lawful commands. That's our duty as being under authority. Now this can be incredibly difficult at times. It really can. Because when we think that we're given a command and it's, it's not a lawful command, uh, even though it may be, if it is a lawful command, it is hard for us sometimes to submit because we don't like to submit, right? It's very hard for us to submit. But we are called to submit if it is lawful. But we must do our part, and the Lord will do his. Solomon argues that we are to keep the king's command because of the oath to God. So from what I understand, and as I studied this, it was common that the, the subjects who were under a king would swear an oath of allegiance to their kings before God. So you would have these subjects swearing an oath saying, I will uphold the king, I will submit to the king, I will live in such a way that honors the king. And I like what Jay Adams says here, he says, it is this that really ought to bind one to his king, not merely the fear of his wrath against those who are disobedient. It is this notion of your swearing an oath to be under this king. And we've already looked at vows and oaths and how important those are to keep, that you are to 
keep your vows. You are to do what you say that you will do. So really here, there's this principle of upholding what has been sworn for doing what you say you will do. For example, in church here at Bridwell Heights, you've taken a vow to maintain the peace and purity of the church. That is your vow. That is what you are to strive to do, to maintain the peace and purity and to to love one another and to, to love your elders. That is the general principle that we are to have, that we are to, to uphold what we have sworn to do. We are to be people of our word. However, there does need to be a disclaimer here derived from Scripture and from our Westminster Confession. And this is important. Note that our Westminster says that we ought to have a willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels. The key word there is lawful. When we are commanded to do something that is in accord with God's law, we must do it. God commands it anyway. So we must have a general disposition to, to obey. And when they command us to do something that is God-honoring, we are to do it. Doing so really is an honor to our God and to our magistrate. However, if we are commanded by a civil magistrate, by a supervisor, by a parent, by an elder, by any other place of authority to do what God has forbidden, you must not do it. The Westminster makes it clear that it is the lawful commands which we are to do. And it is not a lawful command if we are told to sin against God. Take, for example, the, the godly midwives in the book of Exodus. Now, when they were commanded by Pharaoh to murder those Israelite boys so that Israel would not grow strong and would not be a, a threat against them, they disobeyed that command. They said, no, we're not going to do it. And they were very emphatic about not doing it, but they didn't just tell Pharaoh, I'm not going to do it, did they? They disobeyed. They refused to murder. And in Exodus 3, it's really interesting. It says, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And that word, so, there is important, because it just talked about their disobedience. That word, so, indicates that God was good to the midwives because they disobeyed Pharaoh. And they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. God was good to them because they were obedient to him first and not to Pharaoh. And they actually withheld the truth from Pharaoh. And they did what was honoring in the sight of the Lord. So they withheld the truth. They didn't murder. And God honored that. Another example is uh, from the book of, of Daniel. When Nebuchadnezzar erected a, a statue of gold of himself, and he, he commanded the people to come to this golden statue and to, to bow down and to, to give it worship and give it praise because it, it signified that he, oh, sorry, that he was the king. I'm getting fired up. I'm sorry. Let me, let me try to calm down. Preacher brother. <laughs> um, he, he commanded them to, to come, to, to bow down to this this golden statue as, as a sign of, of showing that he was the, the true king. When he did that, he gave 
a proclamation saying, you must do this. You must fall down and you must worship the statue, else you will be thrown into the middle of a furnace of blazing fire. Now that's quite a predicament, isn't it? Either you bow down to this golden statue or you be burned to death. You know, and, and for, for the three that stood fast, it's kind of hard to see a good outcome. It's like, well, either I violate God's command and I do this and I live a little bit longer on this earth, or I be burned to death. Well, there's no real good outcome that, that they could see. It's either you do one or the other. Either you obey the commands of God or you die and die, or you obey the king and live. Well, we're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. They would not do it. Those three were brought before the king to give an account of their disobedience. And the king asked, said, Is it true that you have refused to worship our gods and to bow down when I have commanded you to bow? Is this true? He's saying, Did I get the memo right? Is this, is this a true account of, of what's being said? Are you really disobeying my command? Do you know the consequences of your disobedience? And he, he kind of reinforces that. He says, you know, right, if you don't do this, I proclaim that anyone who doesn't is going to be cast into the fire. So you understand what's going to happen, right? Now, I can imagine the scene here. You have these three men who have been summoned to the royal court. They're standing before this powerful king. It's even worse than being summoned to the principal's office, isn't it? You're in front of this big king, and it's, it's bad enough when you're growing up and you, you stand before your principal for doing something wrong or if you did something right, you get that anxious feeling, right? It's like, oh, I'm in trouble again. Here we go. So you go to the principal's office. Well, here it's the, it's the king who has all things at his possession, and you go and you stand in front of him. They know that they were in trouble, they knew that they were going to have to answer to the sovereign of the land. But listen to how they respond. They respond, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in need of an answer to give you concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods nor worship the golden statue that you have set up. Emphatic. I will not do this. The Lord will deliver me from your hand, but if he doesn't, I will not worship your, king, your gods. I will worship God. Those three men recognized that it was better to serve God and die than to sin against him. They had loyalty to the higher king. They loved the higher king. So we are to obey when we are commanded to do what is right. But we must resist. We must disobey when we're commanded to do what is sinful to God. That is the biblical testimony. And it's not as if kings are somehow exempt from being good rulers. Right? It's like, well, he can do whatever he wants to. He's the king. You know, kings are commanded to uphold good and to punish evildoers, according to Romans 13. 
They are to do what is good, and they are to punish evildoers. And whenever that is perverted, that's when we see tyranny. They are to kiss the sun, as it says in the book of Psalms. And they are to do what the king of kings says to do, which is revealed in his law. So they are responsible for their actions, but we are also responsible for ours. Well, moving on, Solomon tells us in verses 3 through 7, not to be anxious to leave his presence and not to side with some evil cause. You know, in those days, standing before the king was the mark of obedient readiness. If you stood before the king then, it, it was a sign that you were ready to be at his side, to take up his cause. It was, it was really important uh, to do so, to, to show your reverence to the king. So Solomon support, uh, exhorts us not to be hasty in leaving the king's presence, meaning that we're not to be hasty, break allegiance with him, that we are to have this general disposition to support him, to support the ones who are over us. We need to be faithful when we can be faithful. We must be faithful when we can be faithful. The person who keeps the, the king's command will stay out of trouble. You know, and, and there are so many videos that you can watch online of these people who intentionally go out of their way to try to uh, flaunt their rights in front of authority. Now, that's not to say that all authority is, is good. Many of them, they, they come up against tyrants, but just provoking try to provoke and you try to prod at those who are in authority over you just to flaunt your rights. But you do have rights and those rights are ultimately given by God. But we are not to have this attitude of, of trying to proke and prod and make much of our rights or to do things that would normally get us into trouble. Uh, we're to be uh, faithful men and women. Uh, we're to be we're to live in such a way that doesn't cause provocation. Those who are wise can tell the difference between a good command and a bad command. That's what Solomon says here. And we're to keep those good commands and honor rulers and honor the king of kings. But even when it's necessary to oppose, even when we have to oppose, and there are those times, we ought to be wise in doing so. We're not to be foolish. There are so many ways that we could just throw our lives away by trying to do good. Instead of being wise, we, we're rash and we, we try to just go for it as, as hard as we can instead of thinking, what would be the best way to go about this? What would be the best way to enact change? But we are to be wise. And this is Solomon's principle laid out, that whoever keeps the command will know no trouble, and a wise person can tell the truth and can tell judgment. The wise man can tell the difference between the two, and he is to act wisely. Moving on to verse 9, Solomon again gives testimony to his experience. He says, I've seen this before. I've seen this play out before. There is a time when a person has power over another to do evil to him. He said earlier in the book that there are injustices that happen where there should be justice. And there is unrighteousness where there should be righteousness. 
we think of these places of authority, these places should be the places where we see righteousness and justice. But it's not that way. There is wickedness where there should be righteousness. And those who do wicked and injustice will be accountable to that. There in verse 10, Solomon reminds us that the wicked suffer death under the sun. The wicked die too. Those, those evil and wicked rulers will die. J. Adams says of this, Though they may have, ha- they may have been infamous in their time, in their heyday, the time will come for them to be buried. Perhaps this will be in great splendor. Perhaps they will be buried in a grand way. But then it is not long before people forget them. Like the setting of the sun, they go down with a great display to hell. It turns out to be a failure. It is vanity. He lives and seemingly flourished like the grass, but like the grass he will soon be cut down. End quote from J. Adams. So he's saying that he may have a time on this earth where he is a great and mighty man. He may be famous, even infamous, in his heyday, but it won't be long before the people forget him once he's dead. And like the grass, he will soon be cut down. That is his ultimate lot. Those who take bribes, those who uphold wickedness, those who punish the righteous, those who oppress the poor, those who suffer widows and orphans will have an end. They will not get away with it in the long run. They will face the judge. Looking at verse 11, Solomon says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore parts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. We know this by experience to be true. When justice is delayed, wickedness grows. And this has largely been forgotten in our day, that we should give good punishments and that we shouldn't delay in punishments. Wherever there is a postponed sentence, crime runs rampant. That's what Solomon is saying here. It's often the case that crimes in our country go unpunished for years or decades. Year after year, you know, we hear some tragedy that happens. And then in five years, we hear an update to the trial. And we're like, oh, I've almost forgotten about that, that that was even a thing. You know, because it it happened so long after the fact. Justice is so far delayed. And criminals see that. It's like, well, there's no punishment to be had. So what's the real consequences? of this. So there is an appearance that they've gotten away with it or that they have gone unpunished and they become emboldened in their wickedness. You know, this happens even in the clearest of cases. It's like, you know, this happened and it still takes forever for justice to be accurately done. And most of the time it's not even accurately done. You know, there's some form of of justice, but there's, it's not a true justice. And there's, there's so much wrong with our justice system in America. It's almost difficult to say where to start, isn't it? You see all these things, it's like, I don't even know where to begin. This is just so horrendous. 
Most crimes are not, unpun are not punished as they ought to be. Most people are punished from a worldview that thinks there is nothing beyond this life. That's, that's vital to remember, that there is no neutrality. So when people are punished, it's coming from a worldview. And the worldview of our day, of our justice system, is that there's, there's nothing beyond this life. Therefore, if, if we were to execute someone for their, as their judgment for something that they rightly deserve to be executed for, then he just escapes punishment. He just gets out of this, you know, in 10 months, he's gone, that's it. And there's no punishment that that man is to, to have. And this is why there, there are so few instances of people actually getting what they've earned, what they deserve by their wickedness. That's also why we spend millions and millions of dollars to reform those who live wickedly. Think millions and millions of dollars that we spend to reform wickedness. You know, there, there are crimes that truly deserve execution, but from a non-Christian worldview, there is no ultimate judge that will dispense justice. Therefore, someone needs to be in prison for 950 years, right? And this, and as it pertains to reform, yeah, there are some who do grow up and they are influenced and they can be corrected. That is a thing. But, but that's not what's really behind a lot of the reform that, that we see. The reform that we see comes from the idea that man is not naturally wicked, that man is basically good, and something has happened in his life that he's, he's gone wayward, so therefore we need to make sure that we can reform every person back to their goodness. See, there's a worldview behind all of this. But of course that is not true, because we've already seen Solomon say that even the righteous do wickedness, that even those who are righteous upon the earth do wickedness. And it's not that man needs assistance or some sort of reform program to be good. That's not going to happen. That's not what it takes. What does it take for a man's heart to change? It takes the gospel. We spend millions and millions in reform when we have a simple, clear message, and that's the gospel. The heart cannot be reformed by a program. It's reformed by a person. That is Christ. Continuing on in, in 12 and 13, Solomon continues his point of delaying punishment for those who practice iniquity. Basically says, so suppose that a society failed to punish evildoers. Suppose a sinner continues to commit heinous crimes and is not executed those crimes, what then? What happens to a society that fails in that area? Ultimately, it will collapse. But what about the righteous that live in a society like that, in a collapsing society that, that loves wickedness? What about the Christian? What about the one who loves God, the one who loves justice and righteousness, the one who loves the gospel, what of that person? 
Remember throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has exhorted us to remember the work of God. Remember the work of God. The work of God is good. And that in chapter 3, he argues to, to really rest in the providence of God. That all things come to pass by God's decree. And we are to rest in his providence over our lives. That, that nothing comes to pass apart from, from God's will. And we live in God's world. God is the, the vindicator of the righteous, of the poor, of the widow, and of the orphan. He will be the great vindicator. So there is a reason to be godly in a godless society. One, because we have been called to live godly lives before men. If you need no other reason, it's because we have been commanded to live godly lives. To live lives that are in gratitude to what our Savior has done for us. So it doesn't matter really in what circumstance you find yourself in. You are to live a godly life because it is our reasonable service. But Solomon knows that it will go well for those who fear God. And it may not always go well for those who fear God on this earth, under the sun, but it will go well for him in the end. And likewise, in verse 13, it says, It will not go well for the wicked. God will prevent such rampant wickedness. God restrains the wicked hearts of men. We've seen him do this. Ultimately, the wicked are punishment. They die and they stand before him. He brings nations to, to ruin who have forsaken him and those who have forsaken justice and righteousness. That He doesn't just judge men and women. He judges nations for perverting what is good, righteous, and true. So in verses 14 through 16, we kind of have the same type of ending that, that we've seen in previous chapters. Solomon sees great vanity here, but he gives us a, a word of encouragement that not in this life, but in the next, all inequities will be worked out. This is, again, a call to be hopeful. That though we may live in times that are incredibly tough, uh, whether, that has, uh, whether that touches our nation or it touches the religious lives of the people within that nation, we can live in incredibly tough times. But justice will be done. Christ will protect his bride. That we need not fear of the church ever going under. Because Christ protects his bride. In this life we are to be wise. We are to, to be wise toward that heavenly endeavor. We're to of scripture. And we're to know how to live in this life. And how to interact with those around us. Whether it be our rulers, our parents our, our uh, supervisors were to know how we are to, to act with them. And really we are to entrust the outcome to God. That he is the great vindicator and that every wrong that happens will be righted in the end. We are to enjoy this life that he's given us. But we, we do need to do all that we can in whatever sphere we find ourselves in to bring about change. That we're not just to be passive, 
but we're to be active, and that's really part of the Great Commission. You have, you, you're preaching the gospel, you're telling people the gospel, but then that other clause that you're teaching them to do all that the Lord God requires of them, right? You're teaching them, thus saith the Lord. If you want to be uh, a follower of Christ, this is what comes with it. So the second part of that great commission that, that we need to focus, refocus on. We have the gospel, but it's, and that is the, the mechanism of all of this. But we are to say, thus says the Lord. But we need to do it in a wise way. We need to be wise. We need to call out injustice when we see injustice. We need to praise righteousness when we see righteousness. But we do it in a wise way. We are to work within our means to bring about that justice. So I think about out of time. Do we have any questions or thoughts or comments? Nothing new under the sun. Look, I want to make it, make it clear that even conservative talk radio, while we do tend to agree with a lot of what they say, they may have the application right, but, but they don't have the mechanism to bring it about, and that is the gospel. So you're tired of, of seeing the destruction of righteousness and justice. Tell people the gospel. Be evangelistic. Nothing else will change it. Westminster says that Christ subdues his enemies. He does so by conversion or destruction. That we were once his enemies and we had to be subdued. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's pray. I'm out of time. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We admit that we are truly a helpless people and we rely upon your grace so much. Let us not forget that the key to all of this is the gospel. It is the preaching of the gospel. It is the proclamation of the gospel. And that we want to see men and women turn to you in faith and repentance. So help us in that endeavor. Give us your word to be powerful in our lives, to store it up, and to proclaim.